welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. I recently watched the Billie Eilish documentary on Apple TV, and I want to highly recommend it to all of you. I was really moved by it on at least three levels. First, as a psychiatrist, to watch Billie perform and see her life and her family and her struggles and Again, I haven't evaluated her, obviously, but she clearly has some pretty significant mental illness. Yet she is creating beautiful, powerful music that's touching people all over the world and, and, and bringing hope and connection to people. On a second level, as a parent, it's, it's a fascinating study of looking at what loving parents can do because again billy's really suffering through a lot of the documentary in her life and her parents see her they clearly get her they know and they feel that she's an orchid and that she can bloom but that she needs to be seen and met where she is and they just do a beautiful job it's just very inspiring to watch mom and dad and as a big brother i have to say her big brother is the best ever. He should get the Big Brother of the Planet Award because he uses humor and kindness and compassion and to to really be kind of an seemingly her primary support system even more than her parents. That was just a beautiful thing to see. And also this documentary really touched me on a third level as the host and co-producer of this podcast because the reason I'm putting this out there into the world is... I want all of you to hear stories of pain that also involve healing because there's a lot of pain out there, but there's also a lot of hope. And I think when we share our our struggles and our pain, we can also find connection. And ultimately, I really think connection is is our ultimate goal, you know, as humans. And Billy. It's connecting to millions of people through her music, but specifically through her pain, because by opening up and really sharing the some of the deep darkness that not just she's been through, but she goes through, she touches people all over the world. And it's very clear in the documentary that as much as her fans are helping her, she's helping them. So I highly recommend it. I'm thinking about doing an Ask Me Anything episode. So... If any of you have questions on anything you might want me to pontificate on, you could just email me through my website, craigheacockmd.com. And also, as always, Chris and I love to get feedback, comments, critique, um, story ideas, anything. And I will definitely email you back. I love actually having a genuine connection with people. So happy to hear from all of you. Today's episode is more of a post-game discussion and deconstruction rather than a story. But it has as good of an ending as any story that we've ever released. There are three of us in this recording. Elizabeth, who was a participant in the MAPS MDMA study. Karen Cooper, who was my co-therapist in the study. And me. The three of us look back on Elizabeth's three all-day medicine sessions in the study and the interspersed integration sessions to try to better understand how exactly her healing happened. Elizabeth was raised with a shaming, explosive, 
emotionally and verbally abusive father and a very passive mother who basically stayed quietly in the background, never protecting her, allowing her father to rampage through the family. As the only daughter and, as you will hear, as a very free spirit, Elizabeth was often singled out for special abuse. Her father blamed her for everything, even for a sexual assault when she was just 11 years old. When she presented to the MAP study, Elizabeth described the death of her fiancé in an avalanche as her index or most significant trauma. But as so often happens with PTSD, what people identify as their index trauma tends to be the trauma that finally triggered their PTSD, not necessarily the foundational trauma that set them up to be vulnerable. Elizabeth didn't develop PTSD until she was in her 30s, but the reason she developed PTSD goes all the way back to her childhood. Elizabeth, you and I first met on February 13th, 2019, and I have here actually my note from that day when you and I first met, and I'm just going to quote from you. This was about two and a half years ago. Quote, The last few days and weeks, I've been horrible, super overwhelmed, no money, looking for a job, trying to be a single mother, feeling sad all the time. And yeah, I'm always in fight flight. I'm sad. I'm not functioning. I've been mostly broken for the last five years. I can't trust in anyone or anything. There's this awful sense that things are going to fall apart. I feel really alone, even though I have close friends all over the world. I'm trying to start over, trying to get out of the snow. The snow is such a trigger. Uh, the trauma that led me was, for, for lack of better ways to say, the death of uh, my love. And it was a sudden death, um, April 20th, 2013. He was um, skinning up a ski hill and remotely triggered an avalanche and was killed. Um, and I was waiting in the hotel for him to come back with our eight and a half month old daughter. And at that point, I, you know, what is, what does every widow do? It seems like go into that space of, you know, I'm going to fight for making sure this never happens to anyone else. And I'm going to be strong and I'm going to do all the things that are necessary in order to not only survive, but show people that you can thrive under a situation like that. I definitely never wanted to feel defeated by it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I spent a really long time moving so quickly I didn't even know what had happened from one day to the next. And uh, and then I realized, you know, five years on that I really had not dealt with the trauma at all, um, that specific trauma, nor other traumas in my life. And um, a series of decisions made me realize that I really had kind of hit a place where the felt to me like it was rock bottom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Karen, do you remember meeting Elizabeth in, in those introductory sessions and how she was? Do you have any memories of her from that? You know, my one of my most vivid memories is of an early session. I don't remember if it was a first or second one where um, I wasn't able to be there in person and we had the computer screen on and I think Craig left the room for a moment and you said, here, let me bring this closer. And you got closer to the screen and I thought, oh, here's somebody that wants to connect. And um, you were so sincere and so open 
and sharing your story and also um, didn't seem to have a problem with, oh, you're not there in person, we can still make this work. And I really admired that about you and thought, here's somebody that's going to stay with the study and is ready to go inside and see what's there, muck and all, and um, work towards healing. And not everybody that came to the study was quite ready for that. So I thought, oh, this is a, a, begin- a great beginning. I usually start a session with, oh, let's take a breath together. And you immediately, you know, came to attention and were so willing, um, even though, you know, there's a lot of tension that looked like in your body, to try and relax. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of unknowns, and I was actually just reading this in the later, latter part of my note from then. You know, I was wondering when we met how much of your presenting trauma, the, the catastrophic sudden loss of your, you know, your husband-to-be and the father of your child, how much was that the trauma versus you also mentioned when we met that you had a history of some pretty significant physical, emotional, and sexual abuse as a child and adolescent. And, you know, we've seen that in the study before that that stuff can really set people up for later for a later breakdown and I mean I didn't know I was just wondering I thought you know when we go in I just wondered if that stuff was actually way more foundational yeah for sure I mean I I, I think there's absolutely validity to that I think also on the flip side of that I thought that if I hadn't gone through things that I had gone through growing up there's no way that I would have been able to even survive you know that five years before meeting you um after what I'd gone through, I mean, I remember one of the things you said to me in the first session was, and you didn't, I can't remember quote unquote, but it was along the lines of, I can't believe you're actually still here and like functioning and talking to me the way you are, because, you know, one of the, one of my survival mechanisms is to number one, make people laugh. Number two, you know, be very big in a room. And, um, and that allows me to mask so many things, you know, there's very few people, even, even many of my friends that would have known I was hitting rock bottom when I hit rock bottom because I guess number one, I didn't want them to know because I didn't want to appear weak. And and number two, I just, I thought, well, what's the point? You know, this is my stuff. This is my deal. Like I have to deal with it. There's nobody else that's going to solve this for me. Um, Mind you, in saying that, I definitely looked to you guys and thought, well, they're going to solve it. (laughs) (laughs) So, no pressure. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Let's move on to the first medicine day. So, you came in early in the morning and brought some pictures and Karen got us all sort of centered and um, kind of on the same page and ready to connect and and we gave you the capsule and I'm just curious what your memories are from that that very first medicine session Ooh, yeah I don't I don't have a whole lot of memory from it apart from I remember in the morning getting ready and thinking okay here I am I've got my friend up here she's gonna get my daughter from school, everything's fine. Like knowing that all my ducks were in a row, I, I remember arriving and thinking, all right, I am so ready for this. 
Um, and also in the back of my mind, I thought, well, this better be a proper dose because I, I have a very strong um, uh, resistance to, you know, all things um, that you would think, you know, like ibuprofen even is like, I got to take quite a bit to feel anything. So, um, yeah, so I definitely was, I was ready. I was open. I was excited. Um, I looked at each of those sessions as, you know, this is going to bring me f- further to the point where I, I know that I can, you know, wake up in the morning and be super excited about my life, my day, um, excited about all the things that go into that moving forward. Really. I, I feel like, you know, the treading water space is a really hard space to live in. Um, and, and I, yeah, I know that I could do better. And so I was just really looking forward to it, honestly. Mm-hmm. And you'd actually had experience with MDMA prior to the study. So you had a sense what, you know, what you might be getting into. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. I didn't know exactly, you know, what was going to happen in terms of, you know, how often were we going to be talking versus me talking versus me laying down and listening to music versus, you know, I didn't really know what was going to happen. I just knew that it was going to be organic and you guys were going to guide however you were going to guide. I remember in that first session, um, we have started off with some soft, calming music as we took your blood pressure and you put the headphones on and kind of looked and said, am am I doing this right? (laughs) (laughs) Even though we had talked about there's no right or wrong way to do it. And is it happening yet? (laughs) And, um, there was this, we all had sort of a giggly, nervous excitement and, uh, that we were finally at that point. Right, right. Yeah. No, I remember giggling and just sort of, yeah, we were all sort of just looking around going, okay, ready, go. What next? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Ready, start. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, it all just felt, I felt a little bit sort of caged, you know, it was a small room. And so I, I remember thinking, man, I got to spend eight hours in here and then, and then I have to sleep here. And, you know, it, it all seemed, um, but at the same, it, it seemed sort of daunting. And at the same time, like, this is all I have to do. You know, I just have to be. And for so long, I hadn't slowed down enough to just be. Mm-hmm. So it was this amazing opportunity to, it was like a little vacation, even though it was, you know, vacation inside my head, which not necessarily a enjoyable vacation, uh, but a vacation nonetheless, where I didn't, I wasn't responsible for anybody but myself. You know, as a therapist, you know, this is a placebo controlled trial. And so half the people are having placebo sessions and, you know, we're not supposed to try to guess. We're not supposed to try to, um, we're, we're, you know, as therapists, we're supposed to just treat every session the same. And so, but of course, Karen and I are wondering, are you, did you get the real thing? And, you know, there's little clues on that. You know, uh, typically with MDMA, your pupils dilate, your blood pressure goes up, your heart rate goes up, people get a little warmer. And, uh, and because we're going to be sitting with you for, seven, eight hours. And because you were suffering so much and, you know, of course, Karen and I are hoping, I hope you get the real thing. And I mean, my one memory from the first session is whatever, like an hour, hour and 15 minutes in, I thought, yep, definitely. She got it. Yeah. And I was so happy for you. I was so happy for you because I thought Karen and I are a good team, but with that added, you know, Mm -hmm. plus two magic sword, I think we can really help you. So I was just so relieved and grateful. And I just thought, okay, here we go. We hit the jackpot. 
yeah yeah no i agree i was i was very excited as well i was um i mean i know you know the friends that that did know i was going through this you know the first thing they asked was oh my god so how was the first day you know and and how did you feel and i was like well i sure as hell knew i was flying um i you know i wasn't flying really really high but i was definitely flying um and and, and i say flying to the point of not it's different than you know your average MDMA user will go into a rave, which is, you know, my literal nightmare. Um, and this was, you know, just very focused and calming and, um, and scary at times because, you know, with your voices and with your chosen music, um, which I was forced to listen to against my better judgment. (laughs) (laughs) But, but I, I will give it to you. Your, your soundtrack did produce, uh, results. So, um, yeah, no criticism anymore at the time. I wasn't super into it, but (laughs) I think you said that at the time. (laughs) Oh yeah, I did. (laughs) I didn't, I wasn't so sure in the very beginning that you got MDMA, whether I couldn't tell. And, um, I remember leaving the room at one point before we gave the supplemental dose, which is about an hour and a half or so after the initial dose, I remember thinking, I don't, I can't tell. I hope she got it, but I can't tell. And then later, like during my lunch break, I think, after the supplemental dose, I'm like, yeah, I'm so glad she got it. She got it. Her eyes are dilated and she's going in and she's yeah. really working, working with her stuff there. Mm-hmm. And, um, and as Craig said, you know, trying to be objective and not create what we call a confirmation bias, but at the same time doing the happy dance, you know, mm-hmm. when I left the room. Right, right. Yeah. spent if you look at those three medicine sessions those were roughly eight hour days so we mm-hmm. spent 24 hours together in a very very small room um uh, three separate days medicine sessions and i'm curious uh the two of you maybe we could start with elizabeth and go to karen what do you remember like what were their special moments were there kind of pivotal crux moments were there surprises you know I'm guessing we all will remember different things about those three days, but starting with you, Elizabeth, were there, what what did you, what do you still hold from that now? I I believe it was the first day where you uh, began to play a lot of hardcore drumming music. And, uh, and because Ian was a drummer that just brought on quite a bit of emotion. Um, I mean, it still does thinking about it, but I thought also that was good because it, it felt, um, I really hadn't allowed myself to think a lot about it. I mean, obviously, the first couple of weeks after he died was, uh, well, no, no, first couple of months after he died was extremely intense. And but at the same time, I would regularly practice pushing all emotion away because I felt like I had to be extremely cut and dry. Like, child needs feeding, child needs clothing, child needs this, child needs that. Like, I had no time to really process, um, and not only not no time 
but really didn't want to because I, I was scared at how low I could go if I let myself go there. So, you know, five years on, two people in a room caring for my well-being, it's like, okay, this drumming, I'm going to let myself just go. And so I remember crying a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember just feeling as if I had to keep going with it as opposed to, you know, cry a little bit and then stop myself. Um, and just, yeah, fully, fully just open, 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 open. Like the harder the drumming, the more intense the drumming, the more I just, you know, let him go. Mm. So I guess that was that, that I remember, you know, very succinctly. I remember Karen wanting to hold my hand and I wasn't, I wasn't sure. I was like, Oh, but if I hold my hand, then, then I'm allowing somebody else to like, carry this with me and I also really kept feeling like this is this is my shit you know this is my stuff I've got to just do it on my own and be able to stand up on my own because you guys aren't going to be there forever Mm -hmm. yeah I don't remember wanting to hold your hand I remember you clenching your fists on and off during that drumming music Uh, and asking you know would it be helpful if I held your hand oh okay and and you were like no, 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 I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm, I'm okay, I'm okay. I could see the tears, and I thought, oh, this is grief. This is grief. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's still there, it never goes away, really. Just yeah. It just changes in how you see it, you know? Instead of beating myself up for being sad six years on, or seven years on, or now it's eight years on, you know, you just go, well, that's okay. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah, someone you love died, and of course you're sad. Totally. I mean, still on, you know, the first day of school for, for our daughter, like, obviously I get sad. I get sad that he, you know, he's not seeing it. It's, it's forever going to be heartbreaking. And mm-hmm. that's just, you know, I remember like Craig said in one of our first sessions, things are going to suck and they're going to keep on sucking. <laughs> it's like, Thanks for the honesty, man. I really appreciate it. <laughs> And bad things happen all the time. They're not. They're not going to stop happening. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's and that's real and that's true, mm-hmm. and that's okay. Yeah, I remember. Um, it, it seems like again. It's. I'm sure we have such different memories of this, but it seems like rel- relatively early in the whole process that things shifted away from Ian's death to how you grew up and hearing so much more about the emotional and physical abuse at the hands of your father and not being seen by your mother, your mother not protecting you. And I remember just being so overwhelmed with uh, father paternal feelings. Like I just like, because you're awesome. You're so awesome. I like, love you and love you so much. And that, just to think that your father was so horrible to you and your mother couldn't see you. And I just remember that was so painful. And I just wanted to like carry you out of there and reparent you. I just thought you need, <laughs> you need a parentectomy. <laughs> so I remember thinking like, okay, you need a parentectomy and maybe Karen and I can do that. And, and again, from my perspective, over those three medicine sessions and the integration, that's part of what happened. I think that Karen and I, we couldn't help but fall into not just a therapist role, but like 
we wanted to be your mom and dad and yeah and, and do it differently and and have you feel and see that you are seen and that we see your awesomeness well i, w- I was going to say you know being seen through your guys's lens it was you know so easy to feel like i was awesome because because that's that's definitely how you guys saw me which and i felt that and i saw that and so to be able to to believe that that was that i was worthy of that and and that you know the other lenses that had been that i had been seeing myself through clearly were you know marred by um by the lens that you know i grew up with and so it's i mean it's so easy i mean patterns are just spectacular to you know to just watching yourself like (laughs) wow the pattern of if i do x then i'm gonna feel like y and why do i feel like that because i'm looking at it exactly the same way as i looked at it for the last 15 years of my life like you just you have to be able to get out of that pattern and so you know as far as i read before the sessions that's what mdma is supposed to do is get you into a different thought pattern um and once you you know have those patterns you know enough solidified then you can hop back into them when you need to as opposed to go the same route that you've been going you know since since childhood mm-hmm. the lenses that i saw you guys looking through and the lenses that i know that you know my dearest friends look at me through i for so long was not able to have that same view um and i desperately wanted it i knew it was possible i just didn't know how to get there things about having a co-therapist is uh your co-therapist often sees things so differently and i remember karen you would grab onto things that i didn't even notice at all and like this idea of you just being like a whirlwind and just like and using you know really using super achieving going spinning running traveling just going a million miles an hour as a coping strategy and um (laughs) Maybe I didn't recognize that as much because I've done that too. (laughs) (laughs) But Karen kept pointing that out. And I thought that was really, I remember you feeling, seeming very kind of panicked about that. Like if you don't do that, what can you do? Like if that, that's been the way you've coped as, you know, Ian died and you started a nonprofit and you, um, if anything, you just ramped up your productivity and your giving back and, you just went into a whole other gear you didn't know you had. And Karen kept pointing out that gear is not working for you. And right. And that's a hard, that's a hard pill for me to swallow for sure. Because, you know, I identify gypsy. Um, I identify with exploring and, and seeing the world and meeting new people and, and all of that. And, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that as long as it's not a coping strategy, which for me, of course it was, um, I remember hearing some of your travel stories and thinking she's either really lucky or she's just like, I don't know, like this, I saw you as this wild feminine warrior and um, situations in other countries and um, around men or 
being in strange places, you just seem to like, you know, barrel through. And sometimes during our sessions, not the medicine sessions, but the prepper integration, you and Craig both had this kind of um, bantering back and forth kind of energy that, um, and then it was like, oh, and I would be an observer of this and think, oh, maybe we need to like bring that, you know, down a little bit. And you were always very willing, though, to stop and go, oh, um, that's what's happening? Oh, okay. And, And to take a look. And that was another thing that I was so impressed about. Um, my sense was that during the medicine sessions, there were times of resistance. But um, when you recognize that or when we pointed it out, you were like, oh, wait a minute. Okay, yes, that's what I'm here for. And I, I really felt like you had some beautiful resources in your, your um, adopted parents that you had. You had some real strong connections and relationships that I thought, oh, yeah, this is helping her. Remembering them would help you to be more your authentic self. Well, right, to, to trust that I was loved. Yes. Right, because the, the core of it, I think, is I, I didn't feel, or the definition of love that I had grown up with was not something that I uh, felt was trustworthy. So if it's not trustworthy, then well, then it's definitely not love. And <laughs> at that point, you know, you're starting on a pretty shaky, um, shaky ground. And how do you, how do you root down? You know, I mean, that's one of the things um, you both pointed out and many people in my life have pointed out, you know, when are you going to stop moving? When are you going to put some roots down? It's like, well, when I feel like I can, you know, when I feel like I actually have roots. And, you know, I looked at roots as a negative thing. As, as something that, you know, why would you want to stay in the place that you were born and raised? Or, you know, why, like, but then, I, but then at the same time, in the same breath, I would think, God, those people that have roots are so lucky, you know? Because, like, after, after Ian died, of course, what would be the logical thing? Oh, you go and move in with your family and you go back with your parents and everything will be fine. They'll help you and they'll take care of you and then you have your roots. My God, when people ask me where I'm from, I have no idea what to say. And at the same time, you were really trying to provide that stability for your daughter. Yeah. And I remember thinking, oh, she's giving her daughter the things that she missed. Right, but I didn't think I was. That's the difference. Is I, fe- I felt that I 110% was not giving her roots because the, the roots that I'd grown up with, I, I so disliked that I thought, okay, well, if I show her as many things as I possibly can and I take her around and um, you know, I had many jobs that I could do for- remotely, so I would just up and leave and you know go live in Costa Rica for three months because why not mm-hmm. and of course that sounds cool and it, and it was but was it under the right sort of umbrella and did it in the end make me feel like I had done the right thing by her um, I mean she's okay now <laughs> <laughs> in case anyone wants to know <laughs> As I was imagining us doing this episode, I initially thought we would try to separate the medicine days and the integration work. But as I, as I sit here thinking about it, and it's true before we recorded this, 
it's so bound together for me. Like the, the mm-hmm. three medicine days and then all those integration sessions we did. And I think that is a good sign that the, the themes from the, the medicine sessions carried into the integration. But a couple of things I remember very vividly is there was this kind of desperate desperation you had, like, is this going to work? Mm-hmm. Am I going to get better? How do I know I'm getting get better? There's only three medicine sessions. There's only these integration sessions and then it's over. How will I know? Am I going to get better? Is this going to work? And, uh, and, and I think it was after the first medicine session in one of the integration sessions, maybe it was the second you said, I looked at my daughter and for the first time I, just didn't get torn apart because she apparently looks a lot like Ian and that you ever all those years and all those nights looking at her, putting her to bed, that you could only see him and just only see pain and, and how alone you were. And yet for the first time you could look at her and feel joy and, and see Ian's features and feel good about that. And I remember pointing that out, like, that's an ama- that's, that's what's, that's what we're aiming for. That's healing. And you thought, so well, maybe, but is there more like what else? Like what else? Like, there's not much time. And I, that was a small thing, but that was a huge thing. I remember that moment too. Yeah. I, I, I remember it as well, actually. Um, one, I think there's always, again, back to your point of, am I doing this right? You know, that's always been something I've wondered in my life. Like, because the idea that there was only one right way, you know, to do something was instilled in me at a very young age. And that right way was my dad's way. There was no other path. Um, and so, yeah, regardless of whether I thought his path was correct or not, I felt like that sort of that narrative in my own head of, okay, I have to do everything right um, and if I don't, then I'm wasting this super precious opportunity that's only given, you know, to a very select few. I mean, the amount of people that are allowed in the study is, um, tiny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I felt so lucky and just beyond grateful that I was able to get into it. And so I thought, well, I've got to make the most of it. So what if I don't, you know, <laughs> what if I fail at this too? <laughs> um, but you know, you guys obviously made, made me hear over and over again, of course you're doing it right. Like anything you do is doing it right. The fact that you're here means that you're doing it right, you know? Mm-hmm. And so having faith in that process. Um, mm-hmm. Karen, were there moments that you remember in integration or during the medicine sessions where you thought this is working or she's getting better? Or I don't remember which session, but um, I remember a phrase that I used and I'm so grateful for you questioning I'd say do you want to work with that (laughs) 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 Uh, you'd you'd mention something and and you'd say what do you mean do I want to work Um, and it was my way of checking in for readiness because some people are not they might have a memory or an image and um, I was asking you about body sensations and you had this um, tightness in your chest and of course, one of the things we think about with um, these medicines and we're doing these studies is like, is there some kind of side effect coming up? And it was clear to me that you looked fine and um, you, were, you were a little nervous about what's going to come next, but um, you said yes. 
And um, we did some body work uh, imagery around that. And I asked you if there was a color or a texture or a form and to place your hand there and you placed it right on your heart. And it was this black stone. Oh, yeah. Solid black stone. Remember that? God, I'd totally forgotten about that. Please go on. <laughs> yeah. And I, I remember it, it was impressive because you, um, I don't remember if at that point, but a couple times during the study you had injured yourself. And I remember being concerned, like, you know, she's so wild and, and um, you know, I hope that she doesn't, you know, really hurt herself physically. But this, this part inside was emotional. And um, you described it so perfectly, this black stone, not really obsidian. There's different facets to it. It's just hard and cold, and it's in there. And I, as I remember, if I'm remembering correctly, it was around the time where we started talking about your father. And everything that you did, whether it was winning a swimming race or singing with this angelic voice that you have, was not quite right, or trying to learn Italian couldn't quite get there with that either. And it just, I, I was associating in my own mind that hard-heartedness um, and maybe creating kind of a protection for yourself in your heart because of not being seen or heard and it being abused by your, your dad and, and circumstances that didn't, you know, that you had no control over. Mm. In medicine session two, I think that was where I, my tummy was really riled up and um because you had upped the dose and so i'd completely um yeah i had a bad tummy and uh but i think that was also where my legs were up the wall quite a bit and uh and then at one point and again i can't remember when or how this came on but i remember at one point it was this i did have that you know cheesy oprah aha moment where where all of a sudden i was like oh my god i i am my own best friend like there's that for me was this crazy realization. Like, of course, if I somebody if I saw a friend of mine suffering the way I was suffering, I would say I would have a litany of things I would say to that person. And I'd be sure that, you know, at least one out of five of them would hit um, and they would feel better. And so why can't I do that for myself? Every single time I feel anything but, you know, joy and peace. If I feel a little bit of disturbance, why can't I do the same thing that I would do for a friend of mine? Yeah, I mean, timing, set and setting, like, you know, it was it was time for me to come to this space for whatever sequence of events led me, it, um, led us all to this space. It, it worked, you know, um, how do I know it worked, Craig? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that I was actually just thinking of that because you asked that so many times in integration during the sessions. How do I know if it's going to work? How do I know if I'm better? And one of the things I proposed was you know, when you can love again, when you feel safe enough, whole enough, and broken enough to, to love again. I remember Craig mentioned about the reparenting and that definitely came up for me just 
oh, so unfair. Here's this talented, beautiful woman and um, full of life and imagining you like my younger daughter, being very feisty and full of life um, and not really understanding how your mom could not um, protect you and stand up, at least even verbally, really, for you and living with um, so many males in your household, all the brothers that you had, and what a treasure. You should have been seen as a diamond and a gem in the midst of all that, you know, mucking and muddiness with the guys. I remember on the subject of, you know, motherhood and mothering, you know, feeling even more of a weight of my childhood and, and kind of accepting what it is that, that went on um, through the lens of me being a mom and going, well, how, how could, how is this even possible to have this sort of vibe um, in the house when, when, you know, God, I look at my daughter and I think I would literally slaughter, you know, <laughs> armies for this child, <laughs> like, um, uh, without any, you know, thought about it and to, f- to have felt so unprotected, um, just, you know, was even harder to accept at that point. Um, but the other thing you said was, you know, yeah, there, there are so many things that I, um, that I do as a mom that I should be more proud of. Right. You know, and that's something that you guys kept pointing out, like, but look at all that you're doing. Look, you know, it's actually at the end of the day, if you were to look at without knowing, you know, what's going on completely inside, you look at it from a bird's eye view, like you're doing really well. And of course, why couldn't I see that? Why couldn't I just be like, wow, no, you're right. I actually have a, a house. Um, she's got her own room. Um, she eats amazing food every night because I spoil her. Um, you know, why, why wasn't that enough? study wrapped up about just a little over two years ago for you. I wonder if you might tell us how have you been the last couple of years? You know, what's better? What's not better? What do you think maybe the, your time in the study helped with? What did it not help with? You know, where are you today? Uh, well, I guess I'll start with, you know, when it, when the study first ended, I felt very deflated uh, because I thought, well, that's it. Like, Oh God, I hope this, hope this sticks with me, you know, (laughs) kind of make sure this, everything I've learned and, and all of the, you know, sort of inner triumph that I was feeling and had felt over the, you know, three months of it, or I think it was about three months now. And I I was nervous that it was going to disappear. I was like, well, God, that was such a short amount of time to, you know, like fix 37 years of life. (laughs) God, three months versus 37 years, like I'm doomed. Um, So I was a little bit, like excited and at the same time, you know, deflated that it was over. And, and, um, and so in the months after, um, I, yeah, I kind of was still integrating. And I think, you know, I think it's very fair to say that mental health is an ongoing process, right? I'm never going to stand up and be like, I'm cured of all the things, you know? Um, it's not like that. It's just, uh, it's an everyday practice of trying to make sure that you, you know, not only keep it together, but keep on top of it and, and are truthful with what's going on. And, 
uh, through all to yourself, of course, but through a series of events, ended up, um, you know, back where we are now. And in the meantime, um, done a few different jobs. Um, yeah, and then finally fell in love again. So how do I know it worked? Uh, yeah, feeling <laughs> feeling really good at the moment. Not, not to say that there aren't, you know, constant triggers and traumas. You know, my mother is um, on her deathbed currently, which is super challenging. Um, the idea that, the idea that she, you know, she never really did know me, uh, and, and she never will. You know, that's daunting. But, but you know, this is yet another opportunity for me to use the tools that I learned during the session, during the study, to actually dig into you know what it is that's that's causing any sort of reaction in me work with it as you say <laughs> i think um about you you have not removed the joie de voir and and the excitement of who you are and um, excitement in your life but at the same time i may look at you now and you i, I don't see that franticness um just more a rel- more relaxed body and kind of a, a confidence in, um, I'm okay. Yeah. And I think it's huge that you're able to have this new relationship, that you had enough trust in yourself and this other person, and that it doesn't have to be like it was with Ian. And it doesn't have to be, you know, a, um, exactly everything that, that you had before. You know, I still have triggers. Like I have fear of, uh, I remember I was on a plane uh, recently I had to go overseas um, and uh, and my current relationship was uh, I decided to go out fishing in the middle of nowhere and he had the you know tracker and the tracker that he sent and of course I'm on a plane you know up however many thousands of feet and you know it didn't work so I'm like pressing on this link and you know like not found signal not found and of course I'm like not only is there nothing I can do about this situation, but I am so helpless right now. And, and yeah, I mean, I had a fairly strong reaction for a solid four hours of, you know, just having to calm myself down as I'm on a plane on the other side of the world. Um, and then of course he's fine and everything's fine, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but that fear, you know, that, that baseline of, well, you could just up and die. And, and that's, that's a reality and that's a harsh thing to say, but it's true. And we all know that we all walk around knowing that at any point this could be our last breath, but because I've experienced it so vividly, um, it, you know, it's still there. Mm-hmm. One change I've seen a lot of changes, but one change I've seen is that, you know, in, in everybody with PTSD, there's this sense that it's not going to be okay. It's the future is definitely, it's not, not only not going to be okay, it's going to be awful and the next horrible thing is just around the corner and and i've seen your resilience come back like i think when we met you even said like things are not going to be okay and now i think most of the time you feel like things are going to be okay and that if they get rough you're going to be able to manage it and and that you don't have to be the only one to manage it by yourself right yeah, but where are you guys going to be? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
number of months ago, I can't remember how many months, I got a call from you, Karen, on my voicemail. And you said, I have some very surprising or shocking or I have some really wild news. <laughs> like, you're not going to believe this. And I thought, hmm, what's Karen Cooper's really shocking, surprising news? <laughs> and so I called you. And you told me that MAPS had just broken the blind for the first part of phase three mm-hmm. and that Elizabeth got placebo. Yeah. And, um, I saw the results and I quickly texted, um, one of the people at maps and said, could you please check the numbers on this and make sure it's accurate? I can't believe that this is, I think you've got things mixed up with another study participant because we used numbers. We never used your name. And so they looked back and said, yep, verified. And I thought, oh, holy shit, I don't, I, no, Elizabeth and Craig are not going to believe it. I can't believe it. And so I asked them to check again. <laughs> I asked a different person to check a second time. <laughs> um, because I was sure by the end of the study, you know, even after, after the first session, at Medicine Day, yeah, she got, she got MDMA. She's done so much work and uh, has gone so far in this, you know, several month period. And, um, yeah, it was a surprise. And then you said, should I call Elizabeth or do you want to call her? (laughs) (laughs) And I think I said, I said, oh no, I'll call her. her. (laughs) I I can't wait to hear her response. And yeah. Well, first of all, you didn't call me, you texted and said, we need to have a, we need to have a little three-way conversation. I thought, Mm. oh God, am I in trouble? (laughs) Um, and, and so I said, okay. And I kept saying, you got to tell me what this is about. You got to tell me. And you're like, no, no, just wait for the call. I'm like, God, for the love. So anyway, finally the day came. I think it was in December. Uh, yeah, I think it was in December. Anyway. And yeah, you guys both got on the phone. And, and I just had this gut feeling. Once, once you both were on the phone, I was like, ah, no, no. Anyway, I can't remember who actually blurted it out. I think it was you. And yeah, my initial reaction was, absolutely not like that is absurd um just just purely because of the physiological reactions that i was having in my body during the sessions um so first reaction was no way second reaction that shortly followed was damn and then third reaction right after that was i'm fucking amazing (laughs) yeah you said something like that this means that i'm the one that did it I'm the one that got better. <laughs> yeah, the idea. This is even better than getting MDMA, you said. <laughs> yeah, the idea that, you know, I, I don't have to, uh, I don't have to have some sort of outside um, substance to get me to a point where I feel like uh, I can heal whatever ails me. Um, so it's a pretty powerful feeling. Uh, also daunting. Uh, a little bit scary, but also, I mean, for the most part, overbearingly awesome. I remember you saying, too, this means that if something else happens, I I can get through that, too. Yeah. Like, you don't need the study. Yeah. You don't need the drug. Well, then it's, but then, then of course, the question follows, what would have happened if I had gotten the MDMA? <laughs> <laughs> you know, just out of curiosity, like, would it have been better, worse, the same? We don't know. We don't know. We'll never know.
So we've all talked, you know, outside of here. What happened? Why did it work? How did it work? And one one thing I've been thinking a lot about is that um, you came to the study with severe PTSD, but not really with severe attachment trauma. And that you, even as a kid, young kid, you were able to find mentors, coaches, surrogate parents, friends. Like you just had this amazing quality that you were always able to find people to love you and see you and connect with you because your parents couldn't. And, you know, a lot of people who come to the study or people that I see in my office with PTSD also have serious attachment trauma. And so, but you really didn't because, you know, even, uh, I love that anecdote Karen told at the beginning of this about you really wanting to connect more deeply on Zoom and get closer. I mean, I think like that was an element of this sort of special sauce that you still had the capacity despite the abuse and physical and sexual abuse and emotional abuse and Ian's tragic death, that you still somewhere had the circuitry to be able to trust and open and try to deeply connect with others and with yourself. It's funny because I think actually post the study, I'm slightly, I always thought of myself as an extrovert um, because of, you know, my desire to connect. Um, but I think after the study, I've, I think I've gone a little more introvert um, or, or I've realized that that introvert side of me needs to be fed. Also, I need to spend more time by myself. I need to spend, you know, less time talking, 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 and, and actually just being with myself and, and learning how to slow down. I mean, I think that's still my biggest challenge, slow down just in the everyday life. You know, I mean, I can cook a really good meal in a really short amount of time. Um, and, you know, my partner is like, how do you do that? And I, I don't know. As a short order cook is just what I do. But, I, but there's so much value in, in actually slowing down because you miss so much when you go too fast. Um, I guess, yeah, think of the study. We slowed down. Yeah. We spent a lot of hours in that little room together, slowed it way down. Yeah. And, and, and extended the time. So instead of a 50 minute typical therapy session, they're 90 minutes for mm. the preparation and integration and, uh, and then the day long. I wonder if maybe a couple other elements and the three of us have talked about this is that, a, the structure of the study that there were two therapists, male, female. And I think, I think there was a lot of parental transference with you. And also the fact that you'd experienced MDMA a few times before the study. I mean, your brain, those pathways had opened up in your brain before. And even though you got placebo, you were able to, and this is part of your amazingness, you were able to go there. Like, I think actually, if we could have done some like PET or functional MRI scan, I bet your brain looked like a brain of someone who'd taken MDMA. I do. I actually think you were able to light up those pathways. Oh, yeah. I mean, just like the 80s commercial, I had the full cracked egg. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, 100%. I've, yeah, I mean, you, you could have fooled me and you could, I mean, I still would, I'd bet all my money on it. You know, so often the placebo effect is spoken of, kind of disparagingly and researchers hate it because it messes with data. But, you know, there's also a whole other school of thought in medicine and mental health treatment that the, the placebo effect 
in certain situations, in certain set and settings, is incredibly powerful and that we should be doing everything we can to harness it. And it seems to, that there was this perfect storm that was created when we came together and we got an awesome placebo effect. Yes, I'm actually, you know, now, as opposed to the initial reaction of, oh, damn, I'm like, oh, thank God. Like, so, so grateful. So grateful. Uh, but I also, you know, understand that, yeah, we were the perfect storm. There was, you know, I don't think that just any two people could have rocked up and, you know, been able to um, get that deep that quick. You know, so... um because I'm, yeah, I'm kind of a hard shell to crack. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing, Craig and I work really well together, and I have such uh, deep admiration and, and trust. We have that for each other. We had that before, even before meeting you. So I think that lends a lot. And it's not typical for two therapists to work with one client or participant. And so it was very unique yeah. in, in that way, the way that it was set up. Yeah, well, and you also had, you know, because it's such an interesting type of therapy and you guys are genuinely interested in it, it's less, you know, I don't know, I guess I felt like, um, I guess I felt like, well, I'm not wasting their time, you know, because the only thing we have on this earth is time that that you can't buy. And, and so for me, I, I always worry if I'm, am I wasting their time? Because like, I'm not paying them, right? So, but they actually really care. This is very cool. <laughs> <laughs> they actually care and... and um, I mean, I remember right after the study, I thought, God, I want to be a therapist just like you guys are <laughs> now. And I still, and I still think that I still think God, it, it's such an amazing thing to, you know, to care about someone so much that you spend 24 hours in a tiny room with someone. Um, you know, that's a lot of time. That's a lot of love. It's a lot of care and a lot of trust. And, um, I mean, I said it to you before I'll say it to you on a podcast. You guys saved my life. If you like this episode, please share it with someone who would find meaning or hope. And Chris and I love to read reviews, so if you would write a review for us, we would be most grateful. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, we love to get just your comments and critiques and emails. And you can reach out to me on my website, craigheacockmd.com. <laughs>